welcome to episode 20 of the Green and Healthy Places podcast, in which we take a deep dive into the world of well-being and sustainability in real estate and hospitality. Today, I'm in the east of England, talking to Hugh Crossley, the fourth Baron Summerleton. As well as being a large landowner, Hugh is a passionate advocate of eco-restoration, the co-founder of the Wild East Foundation, and also owner of Fritton Lake, a nature-centric members holiday club on his own estate. We discuss the Wild East rewilding mission, the role of expanded nature corridors through the landscape in reducing dependence on agricultural chemicals, the challenges of scaling up regenerative farming techniques, and how citizens are actively contributing a slice of their own gardens to the Wild East mission. In terms of Fritton Lake, we look at how he enables human nature connection through everything from log cabin retreats, wildlife safaris around their own farmland, foraging and birdsong experiences, even the prospect of an on-site nature gym to complement the existing wild swimming, stand-up paddling, trail running and triathlon training options. Ultimately though, this is a conversation about what Hugh, Lord Summerton calls the Age of Salvation a society-wide reset of how we live, eat, think, and consume. It's about a relationship with nature based on coexistence rather than dominance of us over her. There is surely no more powerful expression of my own green and healthy places concept than this one. So I invite you to step back, think big for a moment, and above all, listen through to the end for the full expression of this fascinating concept. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing for more regular updates. You have all the websites and social media links in the show notes. Now it's over to Lord Summerleton to talk rewilding. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you here with us. I thought we could start by just um, talking a little bit about the hospitality offer at Fritton Lake, because it's it seems it's, it's inherently connected with nature. You have a range of of hospitality, so accommodation options there. How have you gone about sort of creating that that um, yeah, quite a diverse selection of accommodation options? Well, I think um, in in a sense, you're, you're totally right. I mean, the the the, the draw of Fritton, um, even if it wasn't so overt for more than a hundred years, really, in different ways, has been the tourist the tourist and hospitality offering has been connected to the natural beauty of Fritton Lake, and and I, I suppose. Back then, there were there wasn't the climate emergency and there, and there wasn't the eco catastrophe and biodiversity loss, but so people weren't maybe conscious so much of um, as they are now in the reason for coming being being a, a nature based reason to reconnect. But but actually, you know, in fact, it's the same the same thing kind of repackaged for for twenty first century. But we, we, I mean, to answer your question, it, it, we. we struck out in 2003 four uh to and got a consent for you know what really were log cabin homes which are owned by you know we sell it on a on a license and, and that community has sort of grown over time and but it's only really i have to say in the last sort of it's been in my mind for a while but the, the last four to five years that that's sort of maturing into um a, a very clear thing and we, we we hook the three hooks that we we kind of talk about are absolutely food and hospitality we want people to be well looked after and um, in the, all the traditional ways 
that good hospitality does but but then there's the sport and recreation which is you know how we connected in particular and then it, and the wrapper is this wonderful thousand acre um wildland sort of reserve that we've created which is you know in a way always been there but has been officially created with a with um with sort of new meaning in the last sort of uh, 18 months it strikes me that there is there is an element of uh, putting a slightly different twist on some things that have been have been with us for a long time. I mean, you mentioned the idea of uh, wild swimming, which is effectively going for a dip in the lake. But, you know, it's almost as if we've needed, we because we've become, so many of us, are certainly living in cities, have become so detached from that. It's almost as if we're having to, to rediscover it. And often in that, in that process, it gets given a slightly different name or it gets sort of almost branded in a sense. But you've become... You're you're really playing quite a sort of a central part in that, from what I can see within within the UK. Like really out there at the forefront of promoting this greater connection to nature. Has that always been there, or and has it was it obvious to do that, or was it very much led on a personal mission basis? Um, well, I suppose if I, I kind of belong to that category I was speaking to before. You know, I grew up there and took it for granted completely. But wild swimming, therefore, was just what we did, um, and to a certain extent, you could argue that I know it's a a word that until very recently has belonged belong exclusively to Africa, but going on safari to a, to a degree with my father was, you know, what we did also. But but as you say, the relevance of it has, has been repackaged and the urgency around that, both for the mental health, that for people feeling the need to connect, but also together with the emergency. So the, the, sorry, the, 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 the realisation that we're, we've kind of, brought ourselves to the brink um so i mean you're, you're right it's it, it is a rebrand and um in one sense i've i'm very proud of that being part of that rebrand and trying to um help people with that connection and to make it more defined and more obvious on the other hand um um i was talking to my old farm manager not long ago and getting very excited about some of our regenerative farming things and he he listened for a bit and then he, he sort of winked at me and said he said i'll tell you what who that's that's just farming like we used to and so the point the point you're saying is absolutely right it's 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 always been there it's just we we haven't really tapped it but i think i think having said that the one thing that for me it was completely missing until i read around the subject more and looked at the dutch model in usvadaplasm but also the return of wolves to yellowstone and the the sort of idea that the understanding around the trophic cascade how you know everything connects I suppose the thing that was missing is when I was there in my youth and in, and certainly face value enjoying the natural beauty and the and the and the floral diversity to a degree the missing thing was really animals because th- there were no there were very little deer in those days but all the you know the old farming where everyone had um everything was grazed to to a degree a lesser or greater degree um in a very localized way <clears throat> was missing so that the area around the lake the thing that's been missing is it's had it's got the wonderful trees it's got the water in the water it's got sort of fairly ancient species like pike but around it in the hinterland and the arable land we've let go but also in the woodland there hasn't been this sort of suite of grazing animals or predators so it becomes one thing and, and in fact it's it's beautiful but probably as monocultural as as some of the crops in the fields around you know just pine trees with bracken underneath and i suppose a big un, un, un uh I've been on that journey as well. So, um, a little, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I I was happy just to see that as perfect, but didn't realise that it was silent 
all the things that are missing and so bringing bringing that back to life and doing it with new members and and people coming on holiday who who are as well read now as I you know have caught up with me you know so it's, everyone knows about wilding now so you have to be on your game to when you're on a safari to not get caught out but there is that it's an interesting concept the idea of of if one takes what one sees around us and in terms of um you know a, a, a natural park for example is well it's always been that way whereas in fact when you when you dig into it it often hasn't been that way or it's only been that way for 50 odd years or it's actually those trees were planted they're incredibly neatly formed in rows and you start sort of scratching the surface and you realize well, actually it wasn't quite like that before or, or the, the 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 diversity of of species plant species or animal species is far uh far reduced compared to how it perhaps three or four generations ago but it's not immediately obvious so how do you how do you sort of encourage that that type of thinking obviously there's some guests who perhaps probably come to you by that stage because they're, they're they're advocates themselves or they're already converted but it's it's quite a subtle point isn't it you're, you're really sort of uh trying to encourage someone to step out step back a little bit and to to rethink what they consider to be well, well that's nature because often it's a nature that we've crafted or, or molded uh to some extent over the last 50 or 100 years whereas you're, you're really saying well actually gosh we need to go back a bit further than that is, is would that be fair yeah i think that's right i think we're very good at, you know we're vain species and very conscious um of our own self-importance and that, i'm not criticizing that that's just a reality and we don't like to you know when the big battleground about say rewilding the kind of um uh parts of wales the, uh, the upland of wales which is <clears throat> was was forest you know has been denuded by over uh, and overgrazed by sheep and the argument against is well that's our culture you know the human culture rather like the mining the, the culture of miners that was smashed by you know the, in the, the, the um in the days of thatcher and the, the sort of you know the, the big loss was not so much the coal but the communities that's and the way of life and so i think one has to be very sensitive to that in in, in the hill country in in wales there's some people who work incredibly hard to with on a very meager existence but it's in their soul but it's only you know at the most a thousand years old but really in only a couple of hundred years old as you say and and so getting people to stretch that and think that and really accept the fact that it's not a judgment against us being good or bad but you know nature with us in it has been going on for tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of years before and realizing that those farmland birds that we think can only survive in farmland actually surviving perfectly well before we were farming they've adapted to to, to um to fit into the farm landscape and it's only really in the last 50 years where excess chemicals and and, and the, the reduction of scrub and that those things have crashed they haven't been able to continue to adapt so yeah it, it is a, it's it's difficult because you're basically having to um re-appraise and, and and adjust one's entire attitude towards countryside management and 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 our and the, and the culture that goes with that for being tidy and neat i think we we you know we've become very tidy and neat i always say to people on on when i'm on a zoom about this kind of thing is it probably goes back if we were honest when we were terrified of the the state of nature we were living in a landscape of fear and that we cleared ground mainly because we were living in fear it gave us an opportunity to escape and that the, 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 the flymo and the and the strimmer and the pushing back of nature the edge of nature is is almost a sort of accidental hangover of this sort of 
primeval fear of the landscape and and um we need to kind of somehow shake it off and realize that we don't have to front we're not we don't need to be fearful anymore we just got to let nature have not complete control but allow it to have much more self uh self-willed um uh management than we've been used to we, we you know we I think we felt we had to control it was almost a proof that we were the top gun and i think we're now realizing that actually proving that we're top gun is being able to not control and to let go you know a bit like having kids and allowing them to grow up it's the same kind of idea but with nature so that's that segues quite nicely into the idea of when you have that when you when you change the dynamic between civilization as it is today and and nature then that that sort of greater respect for nature or perhaps a previous version of that that gives you a pretty clear direction in terms of how you need to treat it and therefore it gives you a sense of you know sustainability recycling reusing uh, doing as little harm as possible and you've integrated that into into the concept there at Fritton Lake so how does that sort of manifest itself and what's what kind of things have you had to rethink or, or you know adapt in terms of how you operate the business um, in order not to do any unnecessary harm in terms of plastic waste or something like that but how, how have you what sort of policies have you found successful and, and how have you integrated that well, so I'm the first to admit that with with my team, my my employed team, which is if you like one part of the waste or um, the problem, it, or potentially the potential problem, and uh, as in using too much power or creating too much waste or not recycling properly or not thinking frankly about it, it, it how important it is is has been and remains a sort of challenge. Um, you know, part of that is just where i am and it we, you know, as an area it's it's sort of generally you know behind the curve in in most uh, sort of trends um and then there's another group which is the 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 owners of the cabins and I, I have to say to a man i would say they are they've come here because they are respectful and want to live in a more sustainable way and to contribute towards um uh, or be involved with uh, eco restoration in the, in the broader sense and, and naturally um, so when you say to them, please don't bring waste onto site as much as you can, that's first, you know, as in refuse, if you take the refuse, reuse, recycle, they're the, they're the willing ones. The bit, the difficult ones are my team, and not to criticise them, they're getting there now, but it has been, you know, 18 months of, you know, and I think I compare it slightly to health and safety in the sense that I remember my dad rather embarrassed in a, in a meeting having to talk about health and safety maybe in it late 80s or whenever it was as a, as a sort of rather new thing that was foisted upon that generation and and actually now then you know 10 or 15 or 20 years later it just is on every agenda in every meeting it's just normal and so the normalization of of putting nature and sustainability at the heart of all your decision making just is going to take time to normalize um because it's been anything but and and i found the most challenging parts here is the holidaymakers because they've got a, a very well, not necessarily a. They, they're not taking a long-term stake in your business in the way that an owner is, and sometimes the staff, particularly the the, the seasonal and and, uh, and and junior staff who who just haven't grown up in that environment, and so it's really, you know, even making them realise why it matters is is quite a challenge. But having said that, you know, we now have a very, you know, I wouldn't say it's quite at the European standard of a kind of European. I'm thinking of ski resorts, you know, which have been like this for two decades, but where every, you know, and, and European airports, where there's all the different bins, we have got all the different bins and we are beginning to 
you know, really reasonably tough on what people bring to site. Um, we've been looking at ways of pricing our menu around waste. It's quite a controversial thing, but you know, a lot of people, there's a lot of food waste in restaurants um, and food has become so cheap. One of the successes, a bittersweet success of modern farming and food production is food's got so cheap that we're happy to throw it away, which is like a crazy uh, um, sort of offshoot of, of the success um, of farming systems. But yeah, so so I think we are probably, I would say, halfway through that cycle and it, and then pushing people away from their cars, getting them to leave, drop and, you know, I, I wouldn't say we were the, uh, yet at the front of that. But I think, you know, I think by the by the end of this year and, and looking into 2022, we feel we should be at a point where we can be where our bark, if you like, or our bite is a, a match. What we say online and what, you know, what actually happens, uh, I hope will be, you know, in line with each other. I'm a bit ahead naturally. And so don't suffer. The, I find it hard sometimes to suffer the inconsistency. So we recycle all off. We've got a great guy locally who takes all our food waste and turns it into energy. Um, but sometimes you're looking in there and they're little sachets of, you know, from, from, to want to catch up because COVID actually has been very difficult for that because no one's allowed to touch anything. So you have to, anyway, so we're, we're definitely getting there. And, 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 I, but I'm, as a group of people, my owners are both pushing me, particularly the new brand, the new breed of owners and, and, and indeed members because they're coming from a slightly different place and uh, are further ahead naturally than this area is, is at. So they're just wondering, well, why, why, what on earth's going on here kind of thing. And it's really useful to have that, you know, uh, constructive judgment you know coming in from from some of my you know as i say owners and members i mean i'm sure if you were, i'm sure if you were coming down regularly you'd be in that group you know I was, I was just thinking that i mean there's you mentioned the word inconsistencies and you know recognizing one's own inconsistencies once you start along that path you know it probably took me three four five years to really iron out those inconsistencies in terms of you know, i started through exercise it was exercising outdoors in nature um, a kind of rejection of the typical indoor gym that I just wasn't keen on. And then, and that was my way in. And from there, it then got into, well, what am I eating? And, and what, how much plastic am I bringing into the house? And, and, and do I want to use fossil fuels if I need to get from A to B? Or is there another way for me to get from A to B? And it sort of, it just snowballs and, and it, you, you just catch yourself with those inconsistencies. But doing it solo, having a, a community, as it seems like you're, you're effectively providing there, which is which was certainly lacking in my case, and you just have to sort of work it out. And you're trying to sort of, you know, you read your books and read, read up on the, on the themes. But it is a process when we're moving. It's a complete lifestyle change if one hasn't grown up around that. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big task to, to deliver it at a, at a business level. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, the other thing that we've, we've been doing, which is, again, where it gets more complicated and you need kind of more... Well, you need the senior management, uh, it, it probably, but also um, real thought is like the purchase of a log cabin, for example, is, you know, looking at your supply chain, is that person adhering to the sort of principles that you would adhere to? Obviously, sustainable timber is, is pretty much a universal thing now, but but not always. And and uh, and they're obviously made in a very, um, they're, very they're made to be very, well insulated so they don't need to draw much power to be warm which is another easy win but when you start to examine that fully as in um down your food supply train uh and 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 other areas of the business that you're buying stuff in but you just think okay well i need some clay for the clay tennis court to start then thinking well hang on where's the clay coming from 
And, you know, it's not always something you can cure, but what you can cure is not, is thinking about it. And as you say, that's, that's the, if you're, if you're, once you're analyzing it and it becomes normal, you, you accept that it can't be a hundred percent all the time. You, you, there will be compromises, but, but there aren't, you haven't, you haven't lost the opportunity to examine those decisions is, is the really key part. Hmm. So just sort of widening the, the discussion a little bit to, to how, once you have someone with you staying, whether they're visiting for a day, a weekend, or or, or longer, uh, then the interactions then with nature. You've mentioned the idea of being able to swim in in a lake, but beyond that, what other what other type of activities can can people get up to whilst they're there? I know you're a trail runner yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I mean, I suppose in in a kind of um, uh, sort of sport and recreation envelope, so to speak, um, we. Last year we we weren't able to do these things, but we we've got a sort of series of different sort of um, experiences that that are kind of led activities. So so a full blown safari, we've got a as you're thinking about it, probably not the most uh, sustainable vehicle in the world, but it's an old Austrian um, military vehicle. But to take people around so they can see both the, what we're doing, why we're doing it, and that's a, a kind of half day thing, um, which you know is is a sort of the main the main way of understanding the story around what is in the end a relatively small wilding project and the processes connected to that and the whys and the wherefores um we've also got a water one which is sort of shorter but lake based but um and then we do the same sort of thing on paddle boards uh as well just for those who want to go under their own steam and then and then on a sort of more local kind of child friendly level there's kind of foraging and birdsong uh, walks it just within so so you know within an hour of of the where they're staying so not not having to go too far the bit the the, the two things that I'm kind of wanting to bring in that I haven't yet uh, last year was obviously a bit of a duff year is as I saw I follow someone in um, I think they're in Africa somewhere but they they're called eco restoration camps but I think the notionally you you go to this wonderful place but while you're there you help um, contribute time to doing something whatever that is I mean it's it's quite difficult because obviously if, it, if it's livestock based, then there's a sort of slight aspect of possible danger for people who are inexperienced. But what we're looking at trying to do is, um, there's a, uh, is you know, maybe a, a trail run around the lake, but a stop point where they meet a ranger and then spend an hour doing something. Whether that, For us, the big thing is, the big enemy, if you like, is, is rhododendron, which was put in by the Victorians. And it's, it, you know, not invasive, uh, non-native species um, that we've been clearing and, and eradicating slowly. But it's a very easy thing because people can just pull the little seedlings when they come back without back injuries and without putting themselves in any danger. And and we've got a few other ideas, but the fun things, uh, you know, f- fence repairs might be one, but moving stock is another. It just there's a sort of hazardous aspect that one needs to think about. And then we've created, and the last one is just on the in. It's new this year, but we've created a a small area. I kind of we're calling it a model farm. But basically, what we're trying to do is most people won't want to spend the time spending a half day or even a whole day tour going around the whole place. But so we're kind of putting in a, a micro farm with some old varieties of, of cereals to show people, kind of tell people that story of some of the stuff we could still be eating and growing that we've stopped growing. We grow basically one crop. I mean, one or one or two crops when we used to grow in the 18th century a lot more, like spelt and uh, pulses and beans, and but also the wildlife uh, corridors that we put in to the farm to try and buffer, give nature a better buffer, and we, so that is just a very localized, you know, 
three acre site just so we can keep you know because we're just very aware from last year that most people will do something that's small scale and within maybe an hour's activity and then they're really dedicated will want to come out on a big adventure and you'd kind of need to provide for both so we're, we're trying we want to leave them each person with a you know and foraging is another one that's easy in that sense you don't have to go very far and they can take it back to the kitchen and cook it but um yeah they're the, they're the, they're the kind of main uh connections really i mean i i i I think from a lot of my members being able to go quietly on their own at five o'clock in the morning or in or even eight o'clock at night in low light on a paddleboard or or on a swim following the edges of the lake quietly probably is more enriching because they get the kind of soulful enrichment uh, that as well as um you know what what they see and it's kind of what I would do I mean it's a bit selfish and self-centered but it's sort of being able to do that is a, is a new thing for us because being a club it, it allows for a, a, a far greater degree of autonomy than when it was a just a day attraction. So we've got to get into this then, the idea of, because you've got the eco-restoration project that is happening, it's almost like a test bed on site at Fridden Lake, and then there's the far wider project, which is your Wild East Foundation. So how, how do the two connect? You're, you're applying similar philosophies to both, but one is on a far, far larger scale and one is on your own land, but applying the same uh, worldview or the same interpretation. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's basically right. I, mean, I think my dad used to say to me that, you know, an estate is a, is a little bit like a, a mini, uh, um, a mini uh, you know, microcosm of a community you know you've got a village with farmland and a, a, and some business and a church and and it's a you know in a small way it's a little mini kind of state of its own and i suppose to, to you're right so in wild east really was three sort of middle-aged uh, eco anxious farmers who were all doing quite a lot of off their own bats and have been for some time as in with me ollie and argus are all you know i think sort of natural rather than sort of conservation um, minded people so wilding was a sort of natural next step for us but we kind of realized that the, the conserving nature which has been the sort of the the policy for the last 50 years really uh, 60 70 years probably back to the 50s when the wildlife trust bought these little bits of land dotted around the country to conserve something a fragment of something that used to be everywhere and that i'm not judging that but but because but but um the reality is there's a book that talks about England being an island of islands. You've got these tiny conser islands of conservation, but they simply aren't enough for any recovery, a sustainable recovery in, in populations of pretty much anything from, you know, birds to insects to mammals uh, and so on. So, you know, we're all, you know, around 50 and, and realise that we could carry on on our own patches feeling good about what we were doing. But actually nature recovery is, is if the government talks about nature recovery networks which is a sort of natural england um study of the connectivity of rivers and and old landscapes and how we might reimagine them then actually the, you need with that to overlay that with what you might call a human nature recovery network because the, the crash in 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 nature is mirrored by a crash in people's interest and basic knowledge in it and if you the, the challenge i think for us all our generation or mine anyway is that we can do lots of good, but the risk is the same mistakes get repeated because the, the people beneath us, the younger generations, just have no connection. And so you can't, how can you save an, 
well, I think that's uh, it was Jacques Cousteau who coined this phrase about you, you, you know, you, you know, you love what you know, and you, or you, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but you, you know, you treasure it and then you'll try and save it. But if you don't, if you don't have any sense of what's missing, if you're a child today and your bird table used to be thronging with 10 times as many species and 10 times the volume of species of those things, roughly, but now it's just the odd bird. You're probably happy with the odd bird, but you can't reimagine that. And I think that's the real kind of challenge. And Wild East was really a call to arms for our region to say, look, we are the heaviest, the most heavily farmed region of the UK. It's on the face of it flat and featureless. We don't have mountains and drama in our landscape. But uh, so if nature, if if we can make nature recovery a kind of brand and a normal, a normal and the new normal out here, then it actually can happen anywhere. And that was really how it started. So, so yes, I use, I'm absolutely right. You're actually at Fritton Lake specifically, but the wider estate, I sort of definitely see as a, as a sort of template, a microcosm, a, mi- a micro template of what could be on a wider scale in this region. And, and therefore it, it does, you know, we're on show now because while this has got some quite good media and, you know, I'm very aware suddenly that, you know, I mean, my farm is not by no means perfect. We've only recently got into regenerative agriculture, but uh, being on that journey, a bit like the sustainability story we we're talking about before and beginning to examine those decisions uh, that you're making, uh, taking is, is absolutely the first important step. Well, then it becomes normal. Regenerative farming, then, I think it's probably worth just zeroing in on that a little bit so that we really get our heads around it. So would it be fair to say it's effectively about trying to put more back in than you take out of the soil? But how does one how does one do that? What what are the changes uh, that you have to implement? OK, well, that's so if you think that up till very recently um, in most and still in most farms that the, the 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 you know, the the, the drug essentially to to, to create crop is is chemicals um uh so we fell out of love with with using nature to to fertilize and enrich the ground you know say it was sort of after the war but really the 60s and 70s was the real acceleration of that kind of happened and and we there we use a fraction of the chemicals now that we did then but but we still use use them a lot and and what the, the sort of the full circle really is not only is that causing biodiversity collapse, catastrophic loss of nature, um, but also um, that we're beginning to realise that uh, you know in a good farming system, that go looking back in the old ways of using nature to um, to help you farm um, is is now being re recognised as actually a good thing. So so therefore the four the four principles really are. Um, disturbing the soil as little as possible um, is sort of number one. So either no-till or min-till farming is kind of the the sort of holy grail of that. Now, it is not possible to do that with things like potatoes because obviously at the moment potatoes are grown subterranean, you know, in the ground. So you can't really do that. But um, so every time you pass, make a pass on a field in a tractor, the tractor is burning carbon, obviously. um, And when you open the soil through ploughing and cultivation, you are releasing carbon. So it's kind of new, not new knowledge. This, um, but also you're destroying the microbiology and the structure of the soil. So no-till is preferable. So you can do that with wheat and grain, uh, beans, you know, oilseed rape, uh, uh, um, uh, peas, 
um, but not so much with potatoes um, and sugar beet and things like that. So there's a compromise there. The second one is keeping the field green all year round. So you remember probably from your childhood is it was pretty normal to see acres and acres and acres of brown fields through the winter. And now increasingly, if you're into regenerative farming, you would behind the combine at the end of whatever crop you've grown, you'd immediately sow a sort of restorative mix, which will be a, a mixture of legumes and maybe oil, radish, and depends slightly what you're doing and, and late pollinators. So good for nature, putting goodness back into the soil and keeping it green, which, which means you don't get erosion. So you don't lose your topsoil, which is, you know, you've seen kill it, kiss the ground. So, um, so that's the other one. If you have livestock, where you have livestock, moving them through the farming system. So they're manuring the soil, um, but also they're outside until they're living a high welfare and naturalistic life. And then all of that should lead to the fourth one, which is reduction in chemicals, because you're using nature to replace the chemicals. Whereas a generation ago, we were we were doing exactly the opposite. So that's kind of the family of things. And and, and if you if you can add into that, the the widening of or the the enrichment of the kind of nature corridors so hedges through the farm landscape so essentially if you imagine at the moment they're all minis if you're looking at cars and we can turn them all into double-decker buses well they double-decker bus will house a lot more nature than a mini and that nature it will help manage the um so if you've got you know insect life we can help manage the aphids and things that attack crops for you rather than it having to be done by a fungal spray and people are beginning now that will only work you know in from at the edge of the field out towards the middle not in the real middle because of the but it but it's really wonderful that people wake suddenly realizing my god you know these things are doing it can do it for us so it, it, yeah so that's the, that's kind of it in a nutshell so so you need that scale then in order to yeah to to, to do enough of the of the the many many different sort of to, to cover enough of the bases, if you like, but then can that that model of agriculture can that scale in itself, or does it depend on a fundamental change in our relationship with, for example, meat uh, and the yeah. things that we eat? Because it often you, the way you're describing the animals moving around, okay, well, that that suggests you've got a lot more space than perhaps sort of heavily intensive farming and agriculture typically would suggest, right? So, so how can it how can it grow? How can it yeah, yeah. Well, I think so. I think so. I think um, so. I've got a neighbour who's a regenerative farmer, and he is heavy land, and he's so it's not good for putting uh, animals out in the winter, just because it just turns to you know like the First World War trenches. So that's so he's he's a real purist. So he he does he, he hardly touches his ground at all. And it's incredible. I mean, when you dig into his soil for a foot down, it's just teeming with life, and he has very good crop uh, results from almost very you know twenty very low uh, uh, inputs as in chemical inputs and we have more mixed farms so we've got very light land which is not very good for growing anything so unless you can irrigate a crop like sugar beet or uh, sorry uh, potatoes or onions that's where the value comes in um, but it's so but we can put animals out through the winter because it's basically sand and they, they can live outdoors on that sort of ground and do good through the winter so there's always a little bit of compromise but in terms of the scale you're quite right if you think of so the, the wild east as a region is about 1.2 million hectares of, of, of um, in area and about 1 million of that is farmed as in, you know, and um, if you think that 40, I mean, you can argue, argue the toss, but somewhere between 45 and 50% of that is growing feedstock. So food for animals that are living 
primarily indoors to feed our uh, addiction to cheap meat. Well, absolutely. If you're going to be farming for nature and and actually for our health, it's a very beautiful and very obvious now uh, um, virtuous circle is that we can give land up for nature. Uh, but that if we reduce our meat consumption, because half of our land is growing cheap food for, for, for meat for, to, for, to grow protein. Um, and if we then consider that because it's become so cheap, people have got, you know, I think in the 1970s, uh, about a third of one's house, the average household income was spent on food. And now it's about 10 percent. Now, there are some very there's some statistics in there, you know, some very impoverished areas where actually that doesn't work quite. But just taking as averages. Well, well, that's wonderful. That you could argue that's a success, but it's come at catastrophic, uh, uh, at a catastrophic cost for biodiversity, and I would argue our human health. Human health. You know, we've addicted to a high sugar, high protein uh, diet, which is killing the earth, but actually killing us. And you know, I, I, I hate to bring it up, but you know, the, the Britain was a uh, one of the worst in America victims of COVID because of that obesity problem, which is coming off that diet. And I think it's absolutely right we should be talking about that. Uh, uh, and we're working with the University of Essex on, on a model, which is t t taking your point about the reduction of meat. It would, I think if we were able to look into the future and look what success looks like, our, our children, when they're certainly my children, when they're my age, I think it will have collapsed anyway. I think it's coming because of beyond meat culture, but because of a sea change. But we're trying to do a model for the Wild East region. If we had only outdoor animals living either on wild systems, you know, like versions of Fritton Lake or on arable systems in the way that I described in the regenerative farming, how much meat could, if we didn't export or import, could we eat as a region purely self-sustaining animals in, in one of those two systems? Anyway, we haven't got the answer yet, but it will be a, it will be a tiny fraction of what we're doing now. And people will laugh at it, but it's a really good place to start because I bet I bet by the time we're in 2070, that will be pretty normal. You know, it's just not going to it's not going to survive because because it's horrendous. I mean, on a very personal level, it's it's a horrendous business. I mean, it, to think that we kill a billion chickens in this country and throw, therefore, 300 million of them away in waste is just that's not good for anything it's not good for the chickens it's certainly not good for us and it's it's killing biodiversity so I, I think it's kind of coming down the track and my farming system here is is completely underpinned on that basis it's a it's a middle i'm happy to admit it's a middle class eco anxious business at the moment wiring away your meat comes from whether it's high welfare but it has to become everybody's concern because um that's that's how you reduce meat in, in intake you know it's got to, the awareness has got to be through the all consumers not just you know the 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 top of the tree um and i yeah so i think you're right so if you take those two big you know the fact and also the other big factor of course is that we've we particularly in britain you know north sea we've been fighting over our north sea fish where we don't eat any of it it all, it, it all goes to europe i mean uh, the irony is we don't we have a very limited fish diet we're very unadventurous with fish our biggest fish import is prawns coming from God knows where, Asia somewhere. And we import 45% of, of, of the food we eat in this country, a, a lot of it from the EU, fruit and vegetables. But, you know, so we're nothing like, say, self-sustainable anyway. So you, if, you're, if you're accepting there's a global economy around food, um, there's also that bit of what what is what food system is that food coming from? It's all very well going to... to um, uh, 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 say a vegan diet but but you know if you look at some of the 
monocropping in South America to, to support um, soya, for example, is equally as catastrophic as beef, but in a different way. So there's, uh, it's a really interesting, well, I could talk about that for it's, a long it's, time. It's, to go it's, on a, it's a very common dilemma. And in fact, it's almost for pretty much anything we decide to look under the hood of, there's always compromises to be made. And there is, I've, you know, I felt it myself at a certain point in that, that journey, that sort of transition, lifestyle transition that we mentioned earlier. You know, there were times where I felt a sort of you know, a paralysis because you just, you, you almost couldn't, in, in some way, we were having a negative impact on the world around us. It was almost unavoidable. And that, that yeah. created this sort of sense of, of anxiety and that I almost couldn't do anything. And that, that also isn't a positive uh, sensation. So that with sort of almost an acceptance, assuming the responsibility on one level, but accepting that at the same time, we still need to get on with our lives and do what we do. But there are better there are better choices that we can all make. And it's usually, you know, there's multiple, multiple choices every single day. It doesn't stop with, you know, cho choosing your diet. It's then how you move yeah. around, what, what transport you use, and it just goes on and on. It's a whole series of, of decisions and it doesn't stop. No, no, I think, I think you know, also the, the, that's right. And I think the, the, the challenge, therefore, and the job of Wild East as a brand, as a story, as a movement is, is, really the, the single thing it, it's about i suppose culture and changing culture through education and what we what we need as a as a planet as a species uh, uh, and in this case as a region is is a reset so that you know um going to health food for shops and being very discerning about what you buy is not kind of for the few but for the many and and it's actually the normalization of this into our society you know the the, the, the choices rather than the you know i think mark carney um put it very well on 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 his wreath lectures i think he said you know we need to decide do we want the amazon the, the life-giving um global life support system that the amazon is or do we want the amazon of everything now as in consumer amazons and where and okay i'm not saying amazon's uh, all bad either but the it is a stark choice and i think the problem we've got to uncouple ourselves from particularly in in the american and british um sort of ultra capitalist societies is is it's all very well to you know this carbon offsetting thing is is actually about money and I, I don't mind the monetization i think that's part of the solution big business contributing towards nature recovery is is but it, it's got to it can't just be that it's got to come at grassroots school and and in the home level of changes and, and, and instead of you know my dad's generation would have kind of probably called these people kind of hippies sandal wearing hippies you know guffs who are just talking about oh yeah we're all gonna live in in let's wear hemp clothes and um and live in a live in a cave and that's how it's going to be um it, it, it is is actually yes that's not going to how it's going to be but but somewhere in the middle is this responsible you know uh socially responsible eco-responsible lifestyle which doesn't mean you know we have to whip ourselves and 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 uh um and and not give, have give a great up all life. of our worldly possessions yeah, yeah, it doesn't mean that, but it just means actually a, a big correction. And I think it's a real, a huge challenge. And if you think that for all of my life, you know, thinking of back to the 80s and when I, I mean, just as a child, uh, all, you know, you know, we, and, and all those American films, you know, consumerism and 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 was in film, let alone, you know, just the the, the progress of consumerism is, is well documented through film as well. as And, and that's a reflection of, and to unpick that, to being okay well look we've we've taken this too far we need to is challenging because people are very very self-centered um 
are very used to thinking you can have pretty much anything you want now um and a lot more society can afford that kind of thinking now and so and for all of us for you for me it's a difficult thing to tear away your yourself from this idea that maybe i'm going to go out of this country once a year because it's more responsible to do it rather than four times a year well you know for people of us who are relatively often that's big big ask actually but also the changing the food habits and i think it's a real challenge and what, what what's really missing for me is if you think of the hundreds and hundreds of millions billions of pounds spent on food marketing and and in fact all uh, merchandise marketing is and the, the tiny amount that goes into the kind of course correct that we need as in uh, i think that one of the missing things is big at big advertising budgets coming from somewhere that infiltrate our lives around the sort of Attenborough line of coexistence and compromise. So it becomes, you know, we've, we've proved we can do it. The government did it like that with COVID. They shut us all down. We all went home um, and completely changed where we live. So we and we did it because we're selfish and it, it, it was self-saving self, self um, saving or self-sacrifice, I mean, sacrifice to save the self. And that's admirable. I'm not saying that's wrong, but we need to extend that generosity to, to the way we, uh, to the planet, to the rest of the things on the planet. And then we won't have COVID-19 and the crises like that. So if we can, I think that's, for me, the I suppose a good way to sort of not end is, is that when I think of progress and think of, you know, when we first came out of Africa and, and all the way through to now, and then, you know, for me, the big, big back step coming out of the European, European Union, because for me, it was just a sense of humans integration across the globe. I think that's a generally positive thing. And the, 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 the age of salvation, which is kind of what we're talking about, and we need to be in is, I think, using our intellectual maturity as a species to actually make space is, is the new is, is the new gospel, really, the new the new way, as opposed to the period of dominion, which has occupied our time, probably since we came out of Africa and ex- exterminated all other human races. And then most other megafauna and all that stuff right up to, say, the year 2000, I think now is this adjustment towards salvation, as in we're, there's no threat to us now, we're in complete control, so we can now use our intellect and moral superiority and sensitivity to, to allow for the rest of nature to, to coexist in a way we've up till now been basically frightened of it and always wanted to beat it, push it back, exterminate it, manage it, farm it, is now to be able to let it reintegrate. So you have to slow down to let, uh, you know, like in Africa you know, and, and in the, uh, India, you, you know, there's animals integrated with traffic and it's normal. I mean, I think they're way ahead of us, not behind us, but they're ahead of us. Um, anyway. It's, it's truly meaningful stuff. And I think it's just, it's great to see the way that you've created, as you mentioned, this almost sort of a microcosm on one scale, but then have managed to scale up at, a, at, a, at an amazing rate to the sort of 1.25 million hectares and suddenly it's almost it's an entire region that you're able to touch and connect with and I think you know there is if you, the, the change you're talking about is societal wide and yeah. it's only by achieving scale that we can really hope to I think you know the individual warriors um, it's going to take a long time the way to the way to speed things up is doing exactly what you're doing which is finding a way to scale up because you have a bigger voice you have more impact you have uh, you have more chances to connect with more people. And I think that's, yeah, that's, it's just, it's what we need more of that. We need more of that across. The yeah, UK. yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, and I hope, you know, it's a, it's an early days uh, journey with Wild East, but I think 
you know that that uh, the someone talked about the it being the very nicely actually the democratization of nature and recovery mm-hmm. uh, i mean that's a very flattering and it, it, i guess i'll be honest enough to say it's not quite it's a brilliant term that we didn't come up with and it, and it, and it feels right now we've got the map of dreams but the the idea that you know someone with a 10 foot garden or a backyard can have a stake and a relevance to nature recovery in the actions they take in their small as as much as i can on a bigger scale and the reason we you know i think they're both of course i've got more scale and therefore theoretically might have more impact but the fact the fact is is that we're the same because we're both taking a step to doing things differently and letting nature back in to their backyard is absolutely as relevant because that's the start of those those change those societal changes you know those choices that you've been through and, and that everyone needs to go through but it's it's going to be interesting to see how how, how far we can you know take it over the next few years i wish you the very very best of luck i think there's a, there's a lot at stake so uh but you're, yeah. you're, you're yeah, shouldering the responsibility with a with admirable <laughs> confidence which is it's great to see so yeah really congratulations on what you've achieved so far and best of luck for what's coming how can people connect how can they experience what you have on offer how can they contribute or help or even just follow along on, the, on an educational uh, and communication level for well yeah well for so Wild East has got a, a fairly lively um, uh, Instagram and Facebook feed. So that's one it's sort of easy way. We all, by all means, if someone's more deeply interested, then, then joining our mailing list is, is great. And, and if you live, if you happen to be listening and you happen to be living uh, in either Norfolk, Suffolk, Hearts, Essex, um, Lincolnshire and Cambridgeshire, which is kind of the Wild East region, which is a links defined by the the links is outline rather than the county then we'd love to get a pledge you know pledge part of your garden the 20 percent. that's that's what we're about really and if it's more touristic then yeah of course coming coming down to visit and i hope that includes you coming down to visit uh fritton lake and and sucking it up on a more intimate level would be would be wonderful we look forward to Super. welcoming anyone who wants to come well we'll make sure all the all the notes and relevant links go into the show notes so thank you once again for your time Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Matt. Very nice to talk to you.